I want us to continue uh, walking through Romans, and we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 4, and it's uh, a, a different thought, a little bit, not much. It's hard to draw these lines of where we disconnect and where we pick up a new thought, because last week we were talking about, or the last time we were together, two weeks ago, we were talking about the glory of God, and how everything that God has done, He has done for the sake of His glory. Which means we can think a lot more about that as we go along. The very purpose of our lives is for the glory of God. Our salvation is for the glory of God. Even the gospel of God was designed in such a way as to bring Him glory. And Paul's going to, he's just riding us on a wave and the crescendo will be at the end of chapter 11 where he offers praise and honor and glory to God for everything that he has done. But Paul's not going to leave glory. He's going to keep touching on glory. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 4, in verse 20, Paul will say, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, meaning Abraham, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So he's not going to leave glory. We'll end chapter 4 on glory, but he wants us to understand as we take on the subject of Abraham and the faith of Abraham, what was so extraordinary about the faith of Abraham, it was constantly redounding to the glory of God. And as his faith grew in God, the glory of God went higher and higher from the life of Abraham. So that's what we're going to talk about or begin talking about, I guess, at least for the next two weeks, if not the three weeks um, that I actually think it will take. But many of you purchased that, the Black Romans Guide. And if you don't have that this morning, that's perfectly okay. But I did want to take some time this morning just to help you guys outline this because it is, like I said, a new section. And I wanted to show you this for those of you who study. And I pray that that number grows as we go by from week to week. But let me show you how Paul has outlined this section as we walk into Abraham. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 27, Paul asks a question. And this is how Paul does. He'll, he'll lay out a thought and then he'll pick it up later and develop that thought fully. So he lays this out in 327 when he asks, Where then is boasting? Well, it's excluded, he says, by what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For he says in verse 28, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Now he's going to develop that entire thought in the first eight verses of chapter 4. Paul's, I mean, he is... Well, it's considered to be one of the most ingenious guys in debate and rhetoric that has ever lived. And so the way that he writes these letters are absolutely profound. And you can understand what he's about to talk about. So you're not getting scattered everywhere. But look at verse 2 of the first eight verses. And he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see what he did there? introduces it, and then I'm going to develop it. Look at 29, 329 rather. He asks another question. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, Gentiles as well. And so 9 through 16, he's going to talk about how the gospel is for everyone. Look at verse 16 of, of chapter 4. Paul says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, meaning the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So again, I'm going to bring up some point, and then I'm going to come back to that point, and I'm going to develop it more fully. And he's doing this in order that we might better understand this gospel of God. And how he ends chapter 4 is absolutely wonderful. In, in the remainder of it, in 17 through 22 rather, Paul discusses what genuine faith looks like. Now, let me say a little bit about that because I spend a great deal of time telling you what genuine faith looks like. Now who is Paul describing genuine faith to? The believers in Rome. And you're like, what is the point of this? It's in order that you might not be confused about what saving faith looks like. And so he's so careful to take Abraham and says, okay, look at his faith. Now you can understand what saving faith really looks like. And then if you're worried that whether or not this is for us, look at the very end of chapter 4 and verse 23. Paul writes this, 
Now, not only for his sake was it written that it was counted to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so Paul comes back to this thought, everything that I've just talked about is for your sakes. And of course, he means that immediately to the church at Rome, but this morning he means that immediately to us. And so as we walk through this chapter in the next couple of weeks, you need to understand, Paul says, I, I wrote this for you. I wrote this for those of you who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might see true saving faith and glorify God through your living out that faith. Now, there is a key word in here. Again, I'm, we're not going to be able to meet on Sunday night. We'll be back in repentance tonight, and you really need to be here for that. So I'm trying to lay this out for you because I really want to keep you up to speed and outline these things for you. But there's one word that Paul uses over 11 times in these verses. And the word is logizomai. If you want to spell it, see me after, I'll text it to you. But it's usually translated credited or credit. Let me read just a few passages again and you pay attention to the word. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then seven and eight, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There that word is again. This is a mathematical term, so if you're a math teacher, you're really going to really uh, enjoy these passages because he's crediting and debiting to an account. And he's helping us see what God has done through grace by giving a great credit to our account. In fact, it's the credit of righteousness. And hopefully if I do my job, you'll not only understand the gospel better, but you'll understand accounting better as well, right? But for those of you who teach... Again, this is so important to me and I'm so thankful that God has filled us with so many people who are concerned not only with the study of God's word, but the teaching of God's word. I want you to notice verse three. And I want you to notice the first five words of Romans chapter four, verse three. And Paul asked the most profound question in scripture when he asked the question, for what? does the scripture say? And until you get there in your life, you're going to struggle with, number one, poor teaching if you're a teacher. Number two, you're going to struggle with immaturity because scripture drives life. What you think needs to be under the authority of scripture, how you live needs to be under the authority of scripture. How you relate to your husband or your wife needs to be under the authority of Scripture. How you train your children needs to be up under the authority of Scripture. Unless you understand what Scripture says concerning a matter, you really don't know anything. But when you do begin to understand what Scripture says, you begin to understand the wisdom of God and begin to know all things that are in Christ. But he doesn't just say that. And this has been the frustrating part for me growing up in the Baptist church because, you know, much is said about this book. And they'll even hold up this book and they'll be rounding amens all around the room. We've grown up with that. But then the book is laid down and the book is not referred to. It's just like the object, but it's not the substance. If you'll notice with me, right after Paul makes this statement in Romans 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, he turns to Scripture. So he states a principle, he turns to Scripture. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but of what is due. Verse 7, 8, then he turns to Scripture. This is his pattern. I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm going to demonstrate that statement in the pages of Scripture. That's how you ought to teach if you find yourself behind a podium. That's how you ought to preach if you find yourself behind a pulpit. And that's how you ought to do everything in life. This is what I think. Let me show you why. 
And if you begin to do that in your life, your life is going to mature very quickly. That's how we're supposed to live, like I said. But I want to say one more thing in this, and then I'll actually get to the sermon this morning. Paul uses, look back at verse 3, and, and look at back at the, what is it, the, the seventh word, I guess, for what does the Scripture say? And he deals with Abraham. Now, that's interesting for this reason, because who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the church at Rome. Now, if you say, well, yeah, but he's still talking to Jews, you have to understand, if you did the estimation of 50-50 Jew-Gentile at Rome, I think you're way over-exaggerating. I don't think it was anywhere near that. Maybe 60-40, 70-30, 80-20. It's going to be more Gentile. Plus, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So why in the world is he going to talk about Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, the most significant man in Judaism? Why would he do that? It's because Paul understands in order to be relevant, here I go, I've got to talk about the things of God. Now, I see this all the time. In an effort to be relevant, we abandon the Scriptures and we want to talk about the things of the world. I've seen preacher after preacher do a good job at the start and he desires so much to be relevant that he abandons the meaning of the passage that he began in the first place. I'm less concerned, and people that would be listening online will probably laugh at this, I'm less concerned with being relevant to you, and I'm more concerned about you being relevant to God and understanding the context of what God has written down. And that's why we talk about Abraham, who's been dead for several thousand years. Because God's going to teach us about His gospel through the life of Abraham. So there you go for Sunday night. Did all that in what? Ten minutes. Let's get to the sermon. And don't worry, I don't think I'll go too long this morning. We've got a lot to talk about when we consider Abraham. But I want to begin by talking about who are the blessed of God. And before we do that, I want to turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Because I think we've gone too long without praying already this morning. Okay. Father, thank you so much um, for the fact that we often pray, for the fact that we have a copy of the Word of God. Thank you for being a God who can speak, and thank you for being the kind of God that has spoken so clearly to us in the pages of Scripture. I know that all of us are not quite yet getting that, but I definitely see a growing toward that. And I pray that the book that we have in our lap or wherever we're looking at, whether it's on our phone or whatnot, that we would begin to treasure as the greatest physical possession in this life. And we would glorify in you for being so clear and compassionate and gracious toward us and speaking to us. Now, Father, I pray that your spirit would help us this morning, help me to communicate, but help us all to hear with our ears and understand with our hearts and believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now here's the question this morning as we begin to look at Abraham. Who is truly the blessed of God? And when you think, when you think about that, your initial response should be, well, everyone is. Certainly every man that's ever been born, every woman, every child has been blessed of God for a great many reasons. And we could name all of those. In fact, the Lord Himself will say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteousness, or the unrighteous rather. So God says, I want you to love everybody. And you're like, why in the world would I want to love my enemies? And God says, because I do. I love my enemies. And you're like, how in the world do you love your enemies, Lord? Well, you know, they get rain. And they get food. And oftentimes they get clothes. And oftentimes they have a, a roof over their head. And they have a beating heart in their chest. And they breathe in and they breathe out the air that I have given them. And oftentimes they have spouses and children. And where do you think all that comes from? The Lord says it comes from my hand. And so when we talk about who's the blessed of God, if any man has half a brain, he'll realize that I am the blessed of God. For surely I have received a great many things of God, things of God that I can't even count. Right. 
But we're not talking about those particular things because all those things that I just named are physical. And as the children of God, we know that there's greater blessings in the physical things. They're the spiritual things. And those are the things that we truly desire. And those are the things that we truly want. So who is it that's spiritually blessed? Who is it that receives eternal blessings? Now, if we'll think about this naturally, it would be very natural for us to think that God would reason just like we would, that he would reward good works and good deeds and good people with good things, especially the good of eternal life. That makes sense. That's logical. Let go of your theology for just a second. We have this tendency around here when I ask a question, we jump to theology. Let's just think logically for just a second. Doesn't it make sense that God would reward good people who do good things with good things? Especially eternal life. In fact, that makes so much sense that the majority of people on this planet, I would say 99%, thinks that's exactly what God does. In fact, the entirety of our lives are ordered that way. You know, we work hard and we do well at work because we expect to receive. And so we begin to think and pattern our lives this way. We train our children to think this way. We tell them often to work hard because we know that if you work hard, hard work is rewarded. And so we not only live this way, but we teach our children. And that's not a bad thing at all. Hard work will be rewarded. We do that in school. We teach them that. We teach them that on the ball field. Hopefully, if you'll just work hard, do that extra stuff, you will exceed, you will excel, and you will be rewarded for those things. Now, is that bad? No, that's not bad at all. In fact, look at Romans chapter 4, verse 4. And kind of the principle is laid out for us here where the Lord writes, Now to the one who works, his wage or what he has earned is not credited as favor, but it comes to him as to what is due him. I mean, we actually live in the principles of God, right? If you work, you're rewarded for that work, and you ought to be rewarded for that work because it's obligated to you. And so we live our lives this way, we teach our kids these things, and we live in that way. But here's where the problem comes. We apply that logic to religion. And religions have all fallen in line with that sort of thinking. Including religions that believe in Jesus, but they believe in Jesus plus, right? In fact, many of the Jews of Paul's day believed that the Lord Jesus had been raised from the dead. But they also believed that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. In fact, Paul writes an entire letter about this, the letter to Galatians. And he's terribly offended at what they have done to the gospel. And the only thing that they were saying is, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He was raised from the dead. Yes, you must have faith in Jesus. But you also, here we go, but you also must be circumcised in order to be made right with God. And Paul says, listen, that's anathema, which literally means you, you should be cursed without ever any kind of hope. There's no hope for you with that way of thinking. And they had simply said, okay, Jesus, yes, but plus. And why do we need the plus? Because we can't get away from the thinking that we have to do something to earn the favor of God. This is Catholicism today. Do they, do they preach faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Is it necessary without question? But so are the sacraments. Everyone has done this. You look at the church of Christ. I don't want to get too much into that. Do you have to have faith in Christ? Without question. Do you have to be baptized? You better or you're not saved. Why would we do this? Because we want to hang something on our own shoulders that we can carry in order that we can feel justified before God because we've done some effort. We've done some goodness. We've done some work, right? And we're confused about this too because what's the first thing we think of when things don't go our way? I must not be living right. Lose our job. Lose our health. Checkbook gets dinged way too hard and you got way too much month to go. 
You fall out of a relationship with somebody, you get sideways with a spouse, and your first thought is, I must not be living right. But if you apply that kind of thinking to Jesus, that theology will not hold water. He suffered and died, and yet he was absolutely perfect in every way. You look at the Apostle Paul. He gave his life for the preaching of the gospel, and almost every time he finished preaching, they tried to kill him. Was that because he was not living right? You see, it takes a lot of work and it takes daily work for us to root out of our thinking that we have to work hard to earn the favor of God. It's not the way that the gospel is designed. So the majority of those who believe in Jesus, again, have this mentality that we work to earn God's favor in hopes that we have done enough for him to be obligated to pay us eternal life. Uh, I had a friend that passed away several years ago. And the very last thing he said to me, he didn't die in that moment, but I left after that moment broken because he said, I hope I've done enough to be accepted by God. And I had talked with him about the gospel more than once, but I could not root out that idea that was ingrained in his soul that we have to work or we have to be good or do good in order to earn the favor of God. It's in your heart and it's in my heart and we have to work just to get that thought out of our hearts and rest in the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, right? And so I'm glad that we did this, but we walked through the example of David and we've used him for the last two times we, are together. we were together on this. But Paul comes back to it himself in verse 6, if you'll notice there in Romans 4. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes the words of David in, in Psalms 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Now if we were to take David and do what we've been talking about this morning and sort of build this cosmic scale and begin to weigh out his life, you can see where things would really start out confusing. Because when I started talking about David, I think it was three weeks ago now, I brought up the issue of Goliath. And you, you study that in its context, and it's really quite amazing, because the entire nation of Israel had no faith, right? And there's John is out on the battlefield, who's mocking them, an entire army, including King Saul, standing on the sidelines, has no clue what to do. And a little boy named David walks out there and has enough faith to understand this battle is not between me and a giant. This battle is between this giant and God. Give me a stone. And we see a great victory in that. And so if we balance that on the cosmic scale of things, what would we say? There's no doubt that little boy is going to heaven. Did you hear what he said before he killed that giant? He said this battle is between that guy and God. It has nothing to do with him. Man, let's marvel at that faith. If we keep measuring him, you know, you, you look about how he related to King Saul. And I was thinking about this last night. So, you know, King Saul was the first king. God anointed and he was crazy. As we say, crazy as a Bessie bug, right? He was so crazy, in fact, that he wanted to kill David because he was jealous of David. Now, there were three times, and by the way, you know this story. David had been anointed king as well. He was just waiting his time. Three times in David's life, he had the opportunity to kill King Saul, who, by the way, was trying to kill David. So I could totally justify myself. Well, Lord, you know, he was trying to kill me, so I killed him. And after all, you'd already named me king. But it got worse. It really got bad one time. And it's in 1 Samuel 26. And let me read to you verses 8 and 9. It said, Then Abishah, who was a military leader for David, said to David, listen to Abishah's words. Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand, speaking of Saul. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spirit of the ground with one stroke. I promise I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishah, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? You, would look, you and I would look at that and go, that's absolutely justifying faith. What a great work. I should kill this guy. He's wanting to kill me. This guy's absolutely godless. Everybody knows that. 
And now my military leader has made uh, the profession that God Himself has given my enemy into my hands and wants to kill him. Surely I should just let him go with that deed. And David's like, uh-uh, no, no. How dare you think to strike the anointed of God? You can't do that, right? And so this, this scale really begins to go crazy to one side, thinking he's done enough to earn the favor of God. And a couple other things. He was known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote more love songs to God in the book of Psalms. His zeal for the Lord was unmatched. He was a man after God's own heart. And so we've got enough things on the scale to say, okay, David, you can go to heaven. Until you run across the story of Uriah and his wife Bathsheba, right? And it goes south really quick. I mean, really quick. Y'all have probably seen that meme. I know me and Rob swapped it back and forth one time. Uriah standing in heaven with his hands on his hip looking at David when he walks into heaven. And he's like, really? You're in heaven? I mean, you killed me and you took my wife in an adulterous affair and here you come into heaven. I can imagine how Uriah must have felt when he saw David walk into glory, just shaking his head. But I guarantee Uriah didn't understand the gospel the way that we understand the gospel because if Uriah was in heaven, he understands that it's by grace alone, through faith alone. In fact, he would be more astonished that he himself was in heaven rather than David. And so we walk through these things. We have to understand that true blessing, eternal blessing, cannot come from some cosmic balance of weighing out our good deeds and on the other side, our bad deeds and hoping that our good deeds greatly exceed all the things that we have done wrong. Now, let me take you back to verse 7. David describes it in a negative sense, and it's absolutely wonderful. I like when the, the scriptures do this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Now, did David do something lawless? And we talked about this the last two times we were together. And I'm not going to go into it again. But what was the punishment for adultery? Death. What's the punishment for murdering somebody? Death. Okay? So, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins, notice plural, have been covered Blessed is the man whose sin, singular as a whole, the Lord will not take into lagizomai, account. And so David's looking at his life and he's got this horrible, horrible stain on his ledger, so to speak. But he understands that through the gospel, that's not going to be written down on his accounts. Vicky understands this. And you're just like, God, why wouldn't you write that down? You mean to tell me that you're not going to write down Bathsheba on the ledgers of David? And God's like, no. And the reason is because that was paid for. That debt was paid for. Because when my son died, that horrible death on Calvary, he paid for that debt in full. I can't write down a debt that's been paid in full. Why would you do that? This is just extra paperwork, right? David had a horrible account. And Jesus died and cleared his accounts. And it's a beautiful picture. We're, we're getting a, a good picture of the gospel with, with John at, at college. You know, just, what was it, two weeks ago? Uh, we got the debt, tuition, that fell on our account in our checkbook. You're like, man, that leaves a ding. Somebody needs to come along and wipe that one clean. And it's the same principle. There's a heavy loss. And you think, and I'm not going to recover from this. But that's just physical financial stuff. You stand before God and you realize the sin in your life and you go, now that's a heavy loss. I'm not going to recover from this. And God says, oh, through my son, you have recovered from this because he's paid it in full. You do realize, and I know this is a little bit side note, Audrey will get on to me for using a movie quote, but you do realize many of your superhero movies operate off of this logic. There's blood on their account. In fact, I think it was um, Marvel, Black Widow said there's blood on my ledger. 
And because there's blood on the ledger, it motivates the superhero to spend their powers and their abilities to do good for the rest of their life. Right? And so you can think about all these superheroes. It's the same logic. You've done wrong, and it was so wrong that you're going to spend the rest of your life doing good. The gospel does not work that way. You've done wrong, I've done wrong, and there's not enough good things that you could ever do in your life to recover from the debt that you owe. Because what you did, you did against God. And therefore, we have to look to God to have our, way, or have our accounts cleaned. So this is how God has designed His gospel. It's really upside down from all this. All works that we could ever do are rejected. Every one of them, even the great ones, are rejected when it comes to the eternal reward of heaven. And then we get into two things that are really offensive to us. Listen to this. We want to take credit. We want to receive glory and honor and praise for our efforts. We want to be recognized for the things that we've done. But it turns out that we're not good enough in any way, shape or form to receive eternal life from God. And that offends everyone. Y'all ever been to a funeral that made you super uncomfortable? The one last week made me really uncomfortable, because, or really comfortable rather, because I talked about Eldon's ability, or his, his love for baseball, good music, and good food. But nobody uh, would confuse those things as, okay, then he's in heaven if he loved sports and, and music and food. No one would make that conversion. And I'm always careful when I preach a funeral never to be confusing about those things. I'm not going to talk about the good and great deeds they've done. And certainly in Eldon's life, they were there and they were a treasure to Miss Burma. And they're a treasure to us for those of us who know those things. But if you ever go to a funeral and they begin to talk about all the good and great things that they've done, you begin to understand what people really believe. Have you ever been to the funeral of a wealthy man? It makes me so uncomfortable because they talk about all the money he gave away and all the things that he built and all the things that he's done. And I'm like, I understand what you believe about the gospel and we don't believe in the same gospel. I went up on the mountain one time at Skyline and went to a funeral and the funeral was way too long, had way too many preachers. And every preacher talked about how good that man was and all the good things that he had done. And I remembered, yeah, that was a super charismatic church, but I remembered we don't believe in the same gospel. You're giving a ledger of good works, and we're supposed to translate that into he's now in heaven. And the gospel simply doesn't work that way. It's very offensive. You have not been good enough to earn the favor of God. But not just that, you have been wicked enough to, to suffer the wrath of God. Our goodness and our good works are, re, are, are rejected, and our bad deeds are punished and so God's son had to die because Joey Carroll is a sinner therefore Jesus had to die if I was to ever have any hope and that's the same case for us all so Paul asked the question look back at Romans 3 27 where's boasting well there is none Look at 4.2. If Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about. But he wasn't. He's not justified before God. And so Paul takes Abraham, who is the quintessential man of the Jewish faith. He's the number one guy. And Paul wants to demonstrate how he was not justified by his works. It's simply not possible, which was terribly offensive to the Jews. Um, Thankful that I'm not the only one that likes to offend people. This is super offensive material here that Paul lays out in Romans 4. It would have made a Jew's blood boil because of what they thought about Abraham. Listen to some of the things that are written in ancient literature about Father Abraham. Listen to this. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. This was written about Abraham. Abraham did not sin against thee. No one else has been found in glory like Abraham. And here's the deal. They thought that Abraham was counted righteousness, not because of his faith, but because of, listen, his faithfulness. 
Now, if you're taking notes, write those two words down, faith and faithfulness, and you'll see what has happened to faith because you add fullness to faith and all of a sudden the attention comes right back to you. Isn't that pretty special? Because if I talk about faith, it's on the object of my faith and it's God. But if you add fullness to it, the fullness of my faith, the attention turns away from God and it comes right back to me. So they didn't translate Abraham was saved based on his faith in God. They translated Abraham is is saved based on his faithfulness to God. Now, was Abraham faithful? Man, he really was. If you, in, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and I want you to see some things. Y'all take a breather. Kind of shake your head just a second, because I need you to stay with me. It's kind of warm in here. I know y'all are struggling. Sarah's probably comfortable. She may be the only comfortable one. Everybody else is like, oh. Romans chapter 12. I want you to look with me at verse 1. Let's talk about some of these things. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. What a call. I want you to leave everybody. And I want you to go. Did Abraham go? Yes, Abraham went. Is that impressive? Very impressive. Is that a measure of faithfulness? Without question, that is a measure of faithfulness. In fact, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11, 8, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's impressive faithfulness, right? Did God reward that faithfulness? Absolutely, He did. But you know what's not mentioned in the context of these passages? Justification. It never says in these passages that God rewarded Abraham for his faithfulness in leaving his country. It's not justifying faith. It's just a measure of faithfulness. You know, I, I don't know, was it been 12 years ago now? God called us out. And most of you know this story, and I won't go into it with a lot of detail. But we left. Had a good job. Had my own business. Had quite a bit of money. Things were clicking along. We were busy every day, just like all you guys going to ballet and going to the ball field and kids doing school at home. And all of a sudden, God interrupted all of that and said, I want you to go. And so we walked away from all of those things and we went out and God taught us more than anything that we had ever accomplished. Were we justified for the, those things that we did? Never in a million years would we ever be justified for being obedient at one particular moment in our lives. Did God reward us for those things? Without question, you know, Paige and I thought we had been at that church for some season and I had taught for years but we never had an impact on that body like the day that we left that body. That's kind of humbling, but that's the reality of it. The greatest impact of our lives was when we left because it messed everybody up. Why would you leave? Why would you walk away from the blessing of God? And so our greatest impact was when we left. Did God reward us further from that? Yeah, there's some link between the life of our kids and that obedience to leave, and I, and I don't understand what that link is, but we're blessed that we have three kids, like I said last Sunday, and I looked again this morning, three kids that are in worship. One of them's a teenage boy at college, and I didn't call to wake him up, but I looked this morning, he's sitting in Sunday school class. There's some link between that obedience and what our children saw when we said above all things is God, period. Were we justified for that? Absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form. It was simply a faithfulness, not a justification to faithfulness. So back to Abraham, there was even a greater moment. You don't have to turn there. I do want you to stay in, in Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis 29, listen to what Abraham did. Then they came to the place, Isaac and Abraham, his only son, the place that God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there 
and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then Abraham stretched out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. That is faithfulness. That is craziness. But that is faithfulness. And God had called him to do those things and Abraham was faithful to walk up that mountain and do those very things and take the life of his son and lifted his hand to do so until he saw the father provide a ram that was caught in the thicket. Was that rewarded? Absolutely. Genesis 22, 15, the Lord responds, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And so he was blessed for that obedient faith. But let me ask you, is justification anywhere listed in that narrative about Abraham putting his son to death? Not once. Not once. But there is a place where this is mentioned. And you're in Genesis 12, but I want to read some things to you. I want you to notice with me, and starting in verse 27, and let me read down through verse 30. I want to show you some things. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of three boys, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran had a boy. His name was Lot. And then Haran died. So we're down to two sons and a nephew. Abram and Nahor took wives. Verse 29. Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Notice verse 30. Sarah was barren. She had no children. Now, that's an interesting detail. We never get a womb report from Milcah. We have no idea if she was barren or she had kids because it's not important to the narrative. There's something else that's going on here. And so we have this unique detail that Sarah can't have kids because we're going to establish that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and nothing else. Then I want you to look down in, in 12, 1 and 3. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land where I will show you. In verse 2, verse, first part of verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Now let's see if you're as smart as the kids on release time. What in the world does that mean? I'm going to make you a great nation. Your wife is barren. One little boy sitting on the front row said, it means he's got to have a bunch of kids. I didn't say anything. I said, you're exactly right. I said, is that a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. Wife can't have kids. And so God's beginning to develop a story that my salvation will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in no other way. And we will see justification worked out in this story, but let's keep going on. There's another problem. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old. That's a problem. We hadn't even started this journey and I'm 75. Y'all, if we had kids and I'm in my 50s, it would be an absolute miracle that I would never stop crying about. And I know some of you really want to get me back, don't you, Chris? For what I did and praying for y'all to have kids. But come on, 75? Ain't happening around here. And with a wife that's barren? No. No, this is beginning more and more difficult. Now, I want you to notice, um, go with me now to Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to notice the promise of God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? I mean, this is the elephant in the room for Abraham's life. And so the heir of all of my house is Eleazar Damascus, who is a servant. And Abram said, Since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house will be my heir, one of my servants again. 
Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And so God took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And verse 6 is the gospel preached. And then Abram believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. There's our word again, logizomai. God wrote something down on Abraham's ledger. Why did he write it down? Because he hauled his son up the mountain and he was going to kill him? No. Why did he write it down? Because he said, I'll go, Lord, send me? No. Why did he write it down? Because he knew that what you've called me to do, I cannot do. There's nothing that I can offer you. There's nothing that I can bring. God, if what you're saying is going to be done, you'll have to do it all. And Abraham goes, okay, don't know how. Don't make a bit of sense. But I trust that you will do the very thing that you said you will do. And God writes on his ledger, justified. And it gets worse, by the way. I, I, I know we're late, but look at 17.1, because it doesn't immediately happen. 17.1, now Abram, when he was 99 years old, it just got worse. We're not 75, now we're 99 and we still haven't had a kid. Look at chapter 17, verse 15. It's not as though his, his faith was not weak at times. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you'll call her name uh, Sarah, and I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be called the mother of nations. The kings of people will come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed, and he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man that's a hundred years old? It will Sarah, who's ninety, have a son? You see how God has designed his gospel. It is not possible. It's not just unrealistic. It's not just improbable. It is absolutely undeniable, impossible. The woman's never had a baby. And now she's 90. And this old man's 100. And they're going to have a baby? Not on your life. Look at chapter 18. We're, we're almost done. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. Still hasn't happened yet. And so then the Lord said in 18.9, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door, which was behind him. Now listen to the narrative by Moses. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. That's a nice way to put that in verse 11, past childbearing. You know what that means? There's nothing going on down there. Is dead. No eggs. No opportunity. It's dead. No life. No possibility. It's dead. He's dead at 100. But note what the Lord says. Verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh, saying, you shall indeed bear a child when I am old? And then he asked the question that the gospel hangs on. Verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And as the church, we say, oh no, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Not even saving a dead man is too difficult for the Lord. Not even turning a rebel's heart around and causing them to worship God is too difficult for the Lord. Not even a man who is blind in his sin that can one day be made to see the glory of God is too difficult for our Lord. This is the gospel. Now, I got to show you. So verse 21, or Genesis 21, look at verse 1. The promise is fulfilled. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. There's your gospel. 21.2, so Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken him. So let me ask you some questions. 
What did Abraham do in that entire narrative? Did you see any good work? Was there a good deed? Did he bring something to the Lord that the Lord could use? Did he meet God halfway? No, the entire picture of the gospel is this old man's got nothing going on here. He brings nothing to this picture. And his wife, her womb is dead. It is absolutely impossible. And yet God brings life where there is death. And the only thing that you and I can do is glory in God. And that's why we're saved by faith alone. Because the only thing that Abraham could do was trust God that he would do the things that he said he would do. Now let me bring you to the gospel and we're finished. You realize there's no difference. Stop trying to earn the favor of God. You cannot. I know it's in your heart. It's in my heart. I mean, we have a good day. We do our quiet time. We go off to work. Standing at the gas pump, for some reason the Spirit comes on us and we share the gospel at the gas pump. The old boy falls on his knees and gets saved right there in the moment. You go off to work and you just happen to buy biscuits for everybody at work and you hand them all out and they say, oh, have you had a good day? Well, yeah, let me tell you about what the Lord did at the gas pump. You get to share your faith at work and you're thinking, I'm riding on cloud nine right here. God must be surely pleased with me. And they're talking in the break room. If anybody's saved, oh, Joe's saved, man. Don't you know that boy's saved? That's not how the gospel works. And you need to get over that. This is how the gospel works. You need to understand that you're dead. You need to understand that you can't produce life. But you also need to understand that God has produced life on your behalf. He took your deadness and He created life through His Son on Calvary. And on your ledger, I know you've done bad things. Hey, I'm telling you, we've all done things that we do not want to talk about, especially in certain company. But do you realize if you've turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that stuff's not even written down? That's amazing to me. But the reason it's not written down is because it's been paid in full. There's no reason to write it down. It's no longer a debt. This gospel, this gospel right here, it's a beautiful thing. I pray that you understand it and I pray that you give your life to the one who has given his life on your behalf. Let's pray.